I mean, the art world is sort of becoming arguably much more interesting now as a result of these kinds of developments. So I'm, and I don't think, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm certainly not a lone voice. I mean, there are a lot of people who are challenging these fundamental assumptions about, you know, what it is that we're dealing with and why are we dealing with it. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This is the third episode in a short series talking to those involved in art who moved from Australia and ended up in London. And for this second episode, I speak with curator and gallery director Jonathan Watkins. Jonathan is currently the director of the renowned Icon Gallery in Birmingham, which is two hours outside of London. So we are stretching the London theme just a little. And while Jonathan was born in the UK, at age 12 he came to Australia with his parents. He ended up studying art history in Sydney and eventually moved back to London in the 80s, holding curatorial roles at Chisenhale and Serpentine Galleries. In 1999, he became director of ICON, a role he's held for 23 years. Started in the 1960s, ICON is a gallery that at once gives accessible and challenging notions of contemporary art. In an interesting link to Australia, Jonathan's predecessor in the role was none other than Elizabeth Ann McGregor. However, after two decades at the gallery, Jonathan will be stepping down next month. We talk about this, as well as his moves to and from the UK, and the international outlook of his practice. He was the artistic director of the Biennale of Sydney in 1998, then headed the Tate Triennial in 2003 and the Shanghai Biennale in 2006, and that is just to name a few. Finally, we talk about making contemporary art accessible while not reducing its potency, and what will define this current period of art making. And before we get started, as always, a very kind thank you to our sponsor who makes these podcasts possible, Lena Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Sydney and Melbourne. And just a small note on the sound of this episode, that Icon Gallery was in the middle of install when we did this interview, so you may hear a few background noises. I'm catching you at a very interesting week because you've been director at Icon Gallery for 23 years and in a month's time you're stepping down. And it's currently install week at the gallery and possibly one of the last, if not the last, install weeks that you'll have. Is it feeling bittersweet or are all of the pragmatic aspects of a new show just completely taking over? Well, it's a, it is, it's a bit of both. I mean, you've got to, you know, the show must go on and, um, you know, there's a certain sort of routine or a number of routines that need to be uh, followed. But of course, you know, the, um, the sentimental significance of it doesn't, elude me and I you know every now and then I sort of catch myself sort of grasping the fact that it will be you know these will be the last exhibitions that I that I curate at Icon and yeah I've I've loved I've loved uh, working here in fact I kind of love it more and more so I'm not leaving because you know I've run out of steam or anything like that I'm just sort of you know you've got to to leave got to leave sometime (laughs) and you may as well leave when actually things are, are 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 going well and icon despite the pandemic actually has been going from strength to strength yeah absolutely you've done hundreds i mean i'm tempted to even say maybe even thousands of shows at this point over you know a four decade career 
Does it feel different each time now or do you have rhythms and formulas after so long? Well, there, there are certain, um, certain habits that you develop over, over time. At Icon, it's different, of course, because it's a team around me that I know well and that, you know, they know how, um, you know, I, I intend to proceed usually. But then every show is different. I mean, making an exhibition of Edward Lear's watercolours with all these loans from different museums around the world is very different to what actually boils down to inventing a new model of an exhibition for Mayan Kiki, the indigenous Japanese artist that we're working with at the moment. And of course, you know, this is an artist who's with us and she's, you know, kind of lively and emerging. Edward Lear, unfortunately, is not with us because uh, he's very much a 19th century artist. You know, there's a, there's a kind of eclecticism in the programme and I, you know, and every exhibition presents a different set of problems and that's what keeps you on your toes and that's what keeps the whole thing interesting. So I never feel like, you know, here's another artist, let's apply the same old formula. Uh, it, it's actually, it's never, like, it's never like that. And then, of course, I make exhibitions outside of Icon, and, and that's happened often. And then I've got to get used to other people's teams and the way they tend to work. And it's, it's that's exciting, you know, when you, um, when you encounter a, a different kind of landscape and you're sort of moving uh, in a place that's less familiar to you. And rather than it's being a bore... Uh, it's actually quite, you know, it's quite exciting, actually. I mean, I've, I've loved making shows in places like Shanghai and Shahjar and, and, uh, and wherever. And I'm looking forward to making more. You know, so leaving Icon is leaving Icon. It's not, it's not leaving the business of exhibition making. No, no, you'll still be around. I do want to talk about Icon more, but first going back to your time in Australia, your parents migrated from the UK in 1969 when you would have been around 12 years old. What was that move like for a child at that time? It was not easy, really, you know, because that's a time when you're, you know, you're starting to form friendships and, you're, you know, you're becoming more uh, independent. It was a bit of a, it was a, it was a bit of a shift. I don't know that people focus enough on... I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about migration at the moment. And, you know, it's a big deal, mm. you know, in terms of um, uh, geopolitics. And it must be addressed in uh, in artistic programmes such as those we have at ICON. But, um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, people arriving on these shores from Syria and um, Afghanistan and, and, and the Ukraine, of course. I have I have a little bit of insight into what it's like being uprooted and taken, you know, to a place that uh, was very strange, strange to you. People talk the same language, but it, I don't, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I reflect on it every now and then. Uh, you know, you move from the UK to Australia. It's not like you're wel- welcomed with open arms because you come from the, in inverted commas, the mother country. You know, not everybody liked this... Uh, this pommy. <laughs> Did you grow up around the arts? Uh, not really. I had a grandmother who painted landscapes uh, and, I mean, in a very Sunday painter uh, kind of way. My, you know, if, if any art form was there, you know, that, um, 
that was, you know, suffused through my childhood and adolescence, it would have been music. But I, I but quite strongly, and actually, I mean, it's interesting, you, you, you know, you say it was at the age of 12. I mean, it was that formative adolescent time that I started, uh, that I was in Australia, and I started to become more interested in art, visual arts, particularly. I studied art at school, and then, you know, yeah. and then, you know, eventually studied art history. Do you think there was something when you were growing up or in later teenage years that made you gravitate towards art? No, I'm not. I don't. I mean, it'd be hard to know, to sort of think back then and try to work it out because I'm sure I wasn't, I wasn't analysing it at the time. But, but the reason why I like it so much now is, you know, probably probably boils down to the same thing, which you know, it's a, it's another way of, it's another. The visual arts are, you know, it they're so varied. There's so many different ways of um, means of expression, and uh, you know many of them are non-verbal. And I think you know an alternative non-verbal way of expressing yourself uh, interests me. You know, with all the all the ambiguity, all the connotations, all the things that can be communicated in between the lines that interest me. I mean, words can you know words can only say so much. Mm, yes. At some point, and I haven't actually been able to find the date, but I'm assuming in the 80s, you returned back to London, and I'm curious why. Yes, I was sort of increasingly coming back, but, you know, as an art historian, really, I mean, I'm studying art history, did a master's degree at the University of Sydney, and my research required me to travel, and so I, so I started coming back in the early 80s, 1981, 82, 83, 84. And then finally, you know, with a one-way ticket in 86. By that time, I'd been working, I'd been teaching at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in their education department. Also something then that was called the um, City Art Institute and then became the College of Fine Arts in Darlinghurst, oh. and I'd also been teaching at the University of Sydney. So I left, Aust- I left Australia, I guess, with an idea of, of pursuing a more art historical career. You know, and I got an Italian government scholarship to study Renaissance, you know, Renaissance art in, in Milan, and you know, that was the, that was the profes- professional hat that I wore uh, you know, in those days, although certainly I was becoming increasingly interested in, in contemporary art. Yeah, there was a really great interview you did with Elizabeth Ann McGregor and you were talking about Australia in the late 70s and early 80s and you talked about a kind of giddy postmodernism, mm-hmm. which you said it rather fondly, but you said that that was kind of what was captivating Australian artists at that time. What was that period like when, a, when postmodernism was arriving in Australia? Well, it shook everything up. I mean, high, you know, hierarchies and canons in, in these various cultural fields were being re-examined. And, you know, quite rightly, you know, the idea of, you know, one, you know, one sort of cultural institution or, or you know, one art form somehow being superior to another, uh, you know, and the idea of, an art, of art centres that were um, places for the avant-garde and peripheral cultures being the places where, you know, there was a kind of sheep-like following 
of the lead that was taken uh, in the mm. you know in those places in, you know in the you know what was then deemed to be the mainstream. I think that was pretty effectively sort of undermined, and I certainly arrived in London with that uh, with that idea. I mean, it's not like I mean postmodernism was happening all all over the world and. You know, it was as strong mm. in London as it was in Australia. But but to some extent, you felt it more there because it had been seen to be and saw itself as peripheral. And and mm. there was a kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, renaissance would be the, wouldn't be the right word because, you know, there hadn't been a renaissance. But, um, it, you know, mm. there was an idea that, you know, what happened in Australia was as worthy of attention as, as something that might be happening in New York or Paris or Berlin or even London. But you have to actually remember at that time, it's not like London, London in the 1980s was, um, felt a bit provincial too. You know, it was only later right. uh, in the in the 90s with the whole um, YBA, Cool Britannia thing, you know, with the... Yes. With the um, development of Tate and um, an art market here that things changed. So, so yeah, when I came to London, it wasn't, I wasn't, didn't feel like I was coming to the, a centre, but I, I think I was, I felt like I was coming back to where I came from. That was, I mean, if one's looking for an impulse, that's probably what it was. And it's interesting you say that word provincial, because I mean, in, in so much theory on Australian art for a long time, I feel like that was one of the reigning words yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, as like I guess the London art world grew and you became more a part of it, did it? Did you ever feel like there was any disadvantage or even any advantage to having that time in Australia? To some extent, I probably it meant that I was starting a little from behind. You know, my, you know, if I thought if I think of people who were my peers then, you know, there was a a lot here that I wasn't familiar with, and I had to work hard to catch up. But no, on the contrary, actually, I thought that I was kind of bringing something with me as well that others didn't have, you know, that was an experience uh, in, a, in a place where, where I felt, you know, there was, um, you know, there was as much going on that was as important. You know, sort of, you know, I thought a lot about Aboriginal culture in a way that people in London around me, you know, weren't or hadn't been, and, you know, quite rightly, you know, understandably so, because that wasn't sort of around. I also think, um, you know, there was a kind of scepticism with respect to cultural hierarchies in Australia that definitely informed the way I thought and worked. An egalitarianism, too, that I I think made a, made a difference for me. I mean, and that's out of an Australian experience for sure. I don't think, mm. to some extent, I didn't really, uh, I didn't, didn't really think about it at the time. But I, looking back, that's that's what occurs to me, you know. And it's not like I regret having spent those years in 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 Sydney. Not at all. I think that would be like regretting, you know, a major part of my life. And a lot of it, I think, um, had a positive impact on me professionally. So before Icon. You held curatorial roles in at Chisholm Hale Gallery and Serpentine, and that was, you know, in the late eighties, throughout the nineties. What was that period like? 
Well, it was actually this um, this moment when the British art world started to wake up towards the end of the towards the end of the nineteen eighties. There was the freeze generation, you know, and the mm. you know, and the whole young British artist phenomenon that then started to to get international attention, and you know, all of a sudden, London felt London in particular felt like it was. Um, uh, you know, quite quite vital, you know, and you can see that. I mean, the influence of certain individuals, Charles Saatchi being one, Michael Craig Martin, uh, Richard Wentworth, Gerard Hemsworth, people teaching at Goldsmiths. You know, there was a kind of uh, entrepreneurialism that was present in art practice then, and a, and a sort of awareness of of the market and of self-promotion <laughs> so in a way that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't there before you know that I think I mean it was it I enjoyed being in London and in, a, in many ways before all of that took off you know it was a kind of sleepier place but less sensational and of course you know it was not insignificant that there was an exhibition called Sensation at the Royal Academy that you know, some years later that featured those artists you know, summarize a, a sort of um, chapter in our art history that I, that I had the privilege of, of sort of witnessing from the beginning. But it wasn't my kind of thing as well, you know, and to some extent my curatorial practice was, uh, you know, sort of developed in counteraction to that. I think I was a little suspicious of the, of the nationalism that it embodied and... Mm. I've always had a slightly minimalistic um, way of doing things. I quite like understatement and I quite like less is more. And, I, you know, the sort of tabloid, sort of rather self-conscious tabloid-oriented excesses of that generation didn't, didn't interest me so much. It, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe it just wasn't cerebral enough. But, um, mm. but it got a lot of attention, you know, and it was photogenic. And it was, it, was, it, was like, it was like a kind of pop, pop generation. Do you think there's an overhang of that now? Or did that sort of almost just become the model of, I guess, the mainstream art world? Well, definitely, you know, those artists now, many of, of whom are, um, you know, royal academicians. I mean, they're the establishment now. The young... Uh, upstarts that were Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. I mean, they are like national treasures now. You know, it did work. It worked. And it worked for them particularly. And, and the art market too took off us here as a result. Mm. So I, it's not like it was all, all over. It's not like it was all over 10 years later. I mean, it, it carried on. And, you know, many of them yeah. went on to become honoured with OBEs and CBEs. And, yeah, now that's going back to what we were saying earlier. Uh, that is, you know, that aspect of um, British society is something that does not interest me at all, and um, and I feel a little sad actually that those who had been so, in inverted commas, radical in their youth just kind of slide into a kind of um, establishment complacency. That links with something I was going to ask you because Icon started in 1964 and it started, from what I've read, you know, from this really avant-garde ethos. And I thought about when a gallery has been around that long 
how do you sort of remain true to that ethos? Well, there is just kind of the inevitability that you will just eventually start to professionalise as a gallery too. I think that you can sort of maintain the ethos, you know, that which essentially boils down to a sort of aspiration to artistic excellence and accessibility. That was certainly the way the artists who started the started Icon thought of it. And it was a kind of a challenge to, in Birmingham, the Museum and Art Gallery, which is like, if you like, the Art Gallery of New South Wales of Birmingham. And there was the Royal Birmingham Society of Artists. And the ones that set up Icon all those years ago felt there wasn't really a place for them. They, they but you know, you must uh, remember, I mean, that, that, that was, uh, it was nothing like the freeze, the phenomenon that we were referring to. I mean, these were, these were pretty, the pretty local artists coming out of an art school that came up with an alternative venue. And, you know, alternative venues come and go. And, uh, you know, it's um, for one reason or another. And it's, you know, good things come to an end and can come to an end quite quickly. But Icon, for one reason or another, started to grow. And I think it's possible. I mean, I, I certainly would like to think that we sort of maintain that aspiration to excellence and accessibility. When I read the mission statement that they wrote all those years ago, it doesn't feel that different to what it is that we're aiming for now. But of course, you know, we're working with a different kind of, um, you know, Icon's a very different vehicle now. And, and um, you know, we could be much more internationalist in our, in our outlook at the same time as as maintaining a, an engagement with the local scene. Mm. What do you think makes a good gallery director? Uh, a, a ability to multitask, I'd say. I mean, you've got to have a pretty strong idea of what's interesting and relevant right now. You've got to be aware of your local context. I mean, if Icon was... If somebody said to me, oh, Icon's great because it could it's the kind of thing that could happen anywhere, that would be a shame. I think, you know, it's a Birmingham in invention and it, you know, and it grew out of this particular uh, cultural context. And I think you've got to be sort of aware of that and engage with that. And it would be negligent of us not to be responsive to what was going on on the ground here and now. But at the same time, you know, these local artistic communities and general audiences that, that we appeal to, you know, are treated to a, pro, a program that is sort of wide-ranging in terms of cultural diversity, countries of origin. Yeah, so, I'm, so I think another thing too is really for a place like Icon and, and a, a director of a place like Icon should be, should be wanting audiences to encounter something they're not familiar with. That is to say, I, it, the idea of a, a local audience seeing itself as if in a mirror uh, when they visit Icon, that, that's not interesting to me. I don't, it's not a, commu it's not a community space in, in that way, you know, where people feel, mm. um, if, you, if you like, sort of comfortable with familiarity. I think it's, it's a place where you can encounter something that you didn't know before. I think it's really interesting because, and I'm not sure what it's like in London, but sometimes it feels in Australia like there are those shows that 
that do make an effort to give audiences something unfamiliar. But then at the same time, I feel like there is also a public audience that is kind of alienated by contemporary art. Mm. Do you, I mean, is that a problem for you as well? And if so, do you have any solutions? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And of course, there are people who aren't going to like, you know, everything that you do. And there's an idea of contemporary art that's slightly... I mean, threatening is probably too strong a word, but it's... um, uh, Uncomfortable, maybe? Yeah, I was going to say that's kind of uncomfortable. And it kind of sets an aura or a a branding or or a way that it is promoted. I mean, either through a tabloid press or through social media or whatever, but also the way it kind of likes to be seen with very old-fashioned ideas about about the avant-garde and, you know, that it sort of sets itself up against the conventional... And I suppose, you know, I mean, it, there's not much you can do about that as, as an individual or as one institution because that's a, that's a way that, that contemporary art is seen in a, in, a, in a wider world. But I think through um, programmes, learning programmes particularly, public programmes, through the way you market yourself, you know, the, the way Icon comes across through press and, and social media, I mean, you're... Yes, we're dealing with something that's difficult. Maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's unfamiliar, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we're unfriendly. I mean, you can be kind of, you can be, you can be dealing with um, sort of difficult topics and be nice with it. Something that you touched upon was the, or is the international outlook of Icon, and that feels just very central to your curatorial practice as a whole. And you've curated, you know, you curated the um, 1998 uh, Sydney Biennale and then the Tate Triennial in 2003 and the Shanghai Biennale in 2006. And I could keep going with more, but one that particularly interested me was that you curated the Pavilion of Iraq at the 2011 Venice Biennale. And you presented a show of 90 Iraqi artists who were living and working in Iraq at the time. And in an interview later, you talked about how, well, you talked, you problematized what would be appropriate as an Iraqi exhibition in the Biennale and just how Iraq is very different from the opulence of Venice and about getting the right tone and not falling into cliches about what Euro-American audiences might expect. And that seemed like such big aesthetic and ethical challenges in bringing international artists into a completely different cultural space. I was just curious, I mean, how do you do it and how do you do it in a way that's so successful? Well, that, yeah, and that goes back to the point that we were, were discussing earlier, you know, where you defy expectation and you um, present an audience with something that they're not expecting or that they're unfamiliar with. I mean, if you think... A little harder about it then of course you know it will dawn on you that you know life goes on I mean life goes on in Ukraine right now in in a way that it just in a, that it has to some children go to school um, well a lot of children go to school and you know people have to go shopping and somehow in those difficult circumstances there's this there's this everyday life that 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 must continue and I was concerned not to reiterate 
what everybody already knew through through the press, through current affairs programs and TV news, etc. I mean, we you know everybody knew that you know it was a war torn place and um, and uh, you know terrible things were happening there. I made that exhibition actually just before um, ISIS sort of came mm. to power. It was pretty tense, but but you know you move around a country like Iraq and meet artists and other you know others as well and are incredibly impressed by just how resilient they are and you know they've got they've, you know they've got lives to get on with i mean the war and these all awful circumstances are closer to them than they are to us you know there was um a brilliant cartoon that we showed in that exhibition of um, somebody watching the news in Baghdad and there was a tank ramming itself through a building and it just happened to be the building in which the people were watching the TV news, you know, so that, um, you know, what what you saw on the screens was, it was imminent and or just around the corner. But I didn't want to somehow kind of simulate a war-torn situation. Uh, you know, I didn't want to make an exhibition that was aesthetically abject. I wanted to make an exhibition that was showing the other side of the coin. And I talked, I mean, I talked earlier about my preference for understatement. And I think in many ways, by placing an emphasis on sort of everyday quotidian life in places like Baghdad, in spite of the fact that you knew what was going on, you know, in terms of, in terms of um, military conflict, made it more affecting as an exhibition than it would have been otherwise. And I think, you know, the, mm. you know, people holding on against all the odds is, you know, I mean, we have people who were very sort of emotionally uh, affected who visited that exhibition that perhaps wouldn't have been if they actually been confronting images of awful destruction and, and human suffering. I mean, everybody knew that uh, and... And it was an exhibition that did, didn't show it. But again, going back to the very first point that was being made, you know, it was communicated uh, subtly and um, sort of it, it was in between the lines. I know I've kept you for a while and I just have one final question. But because you're someone who has had such an international career and an international outlook, what do you think defines contemporary art? at this moment? Like, what will we be talking about in 20 or 30 years' time? I think that um, we'll still be talking about the environment. I think that's really important. The kind of work that we're showing now by an Indigenous Japanese artist, I think that people will... I don't think that's just a phase that we're going through. I think that we are starting to appreciate more that there are sort of other ways of thinking and doing things that are, you know, and other means of expression that are equally valid to that that is um, traded in in the art market. I think that they, you know, there are a, a number of artists that are sort of challenging f fundamental assumptions that we make uh, when working with art and I think in 20, 30 years' time, I think, I don't think there's going to be, it's not going to be a revolution. I think maybe in 200 years' time, we'll have seen a significant change in what it is that we think art is, or maybe even dispense with the idea of art altogether. But I do think um, that there is a sea change occurring. 
Uh, you see it in Brooks Biennale of Sydney. You see it in the development of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I mean, it's extraordinary extension of the Art Gallery of New South Wales that is placing emphasis on Indigenous artists. I mean, the art world is sort of becoming arguably much more interesting now as a result of these kinds of developments. So I'm, and I don't think, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm certainly not a lone voice. I mean, there are a lot of people who are challenging these fundamental assumptions about, you know, what it is that we're dealing with and why are we dealing with it. However, you've got an essentially conservative art market that's not going to disappear any moment soon. What you could, I mean, perhaps there will be a sort of a, a wider gap between the not-for-profit art world and the and the art market, and, you know, and maybe that gap will increase to such an extent that it's, you know, it's just unbridgeable. But that's not going to happen in twenty or thirty years' mm. time, I don't think. I mean, I, it's it's difficult to say, isn't it? Too at the same time, I mean, one is witnessing more nationalism in the world. You know, will that sort of somehow shine through in art practice? Too, when we're at the same time feeling that we can't move as easily as we did for one reason or another, be it the fact that, you know, it's not easy to go to Russia these days, you know, and China doesn't seem as welcoming as it was. And at the same time, jumping on a plane and flying to New York for a private view or an exhibition opening, you know, is something that we wouldn't do as easily in the light of of environmental concerns as we would. But then there are other ways of communicating digitally and, you know, smart ways of being international without, you know, punching another hole in the ozone layer. So, um, I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in a, in a way that um, the institution of art is seen through in a way that perhaps it, it doesn't happen sufficiently. And that we look at, we, we look at other ways of creative practice that are equally interesting and equally telling. But that's not going to happen in 30 years' time. That's just... I'm just now telling you how I... You know, this is, you know, this is much further down the line that people will look back at our art institutions and think they were, they were rather quaint. And that was Jonathan Watkins for this latest podcast episode. You can listen to the first episode of this series with David Noonan and the second with Jennifer Higgy, as well as interviews with artists including Patricia Piccinini, Vivian Binns, Gareth Sansom, John Walsley, Louise Weaver, and many more. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us, or otherwise listen at Art Guide online where you can also keep up to date with art-related features, exhibitions and interviews from across the country.